If you have a Bible, if you'll turn with me to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark uh, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, then Luke, and John. We're in a series called Walking with God. It's a Lenten series, and simply we're looking at instances of persons and what they're in some sense, willing to lay down uh, for Christ, willing to lay down by faith, and kind of taking, um, taking that through uh, specific persons, specific people. And there's a woman in Scripture in Mark chapter 12, it's at the back end of that chapter, that I've never really had occasion to speak to uh, and wanted to do that this morning. She's famous in the phrase, the widow's might, so down through church history we we hear of the widow and, and the widow's might, even though we won't read the word might uh, in, in our translation. Uh, and the Greek word was lepton, uh, of, of a little coin. Um, but she's famous to us because of that. And so we read in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, simply this. It says, um, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. So... In Jerusalem at the temple, you had this room that basically had different uh, collection or offering boxes, and people would come in and put their money in there. And so Jesus has set himself up to where he can view this, which is a really crazy picture if you think about it. Um, it'd be like Jesus, if we put offering buckets here, kind of getting a, a, a chair or a stool and just observing as everybody comes and puts their offerings in. Uh, I don't know that they knew who Jesus was or that they were really aware of it, but, but certainly kind of an interesting thing is Jesus sets up shop. We don't know how long he was sitting there watching this, but he sets up shop just watching as people put money into the treasury. And it says this, many rich people threw in large amounts of money. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and she put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. So, again, the picture, if you imagine, it's a dusty, sunny, probably hot uh, time in Jerusalem. People are coming through. They put money into it. That money is, is going to be used to facilitate the temple. It's also going to go to benevolence and help poor people. And Jesus is watching, and some people come. And in those days, money wasn't on a credit card. You didn't just write an amount on a check. But, but money had weight to it. You know, it had mass to it. And so some people were coming, and they were bringing either very expensive coins that you could see were very expensive or a quantity of coins, and they were putting that into the temple treasury. And so it's this kind of interesting picture. And Jesus watches as this one woman, a widow. Now, Jesus was always looking out for the widows. In those days, if a woman lost her husband, uh, the property was in his name, most of the wealth and social status would have been with him, and she would have been left in this position of trying to figure out, just like today in some sense, the estate and how to navigate this. And they would usually look to the trusted people, to the scribes or to religious leaders to say, can you help me navigate this as I've lost my husband? And it was actually something that began to be, after a while, a way of taking advantage of, of widows. That you would charge an excessive amount of money or, or that you would kind of 
wiggle your way in, elbow your way in um, for some kind of, you know, enormous payment as you're helping these poor people that don't know better. So Jesus is always looking out for the widows here and saying they're the vulnerable in society. And one of these women who has lost her husband comes in and she puts in uh, basically a little, if you can see it, a little, a little fleck of a coin. These things are really abundant still today, these, these uh, old coins. And it's just basically a valueless fleck of metal. It was the cheapest, uh, most insignificant coin in circulation in Jesus' day, uh, this little leptin. It was uh, fractions of what our penny would be. I mean, so just, just a nothing but a fleck of a little, little piece of metal. Uh, and she puts in two of these, we read in, in uh, the Gospel of Luke. So in Mark and Luke, we read about this woman. So she comes in, and she puts these in. Um, but the interesting thing is, is in her poverty, that was all she had. It was all she had. And Jesus, after sitting there watching all these people come, um, all of a sudden kind of moves into action, and he calls his disciples over, and he says, now I've found something I want to talk about. Let me talk to you about this woman. Many people came, and in their wealth, they gave money, large sums of it. But this woman, she came, and in her poverty, gave everything. She didn't hold anything in reserve. So what Jesus is really wanting to speak here is not what we give, but what we hold on to. And I think there's something hugely significant about this. It's the last instance in Jesus' public ministry. This little story here in Mark and then in Luke is the last thing Jesus does in, in public ministry. And then he moves off, takes his disciples, prepares them for his coming death. And then he goes to the cross, uh, cross and dies. And then three days later when we, we celebrate Easter coming up is when we celebrate the resurrection. And then Jesus... Uh, travels around some more, but this is the last public thing that Jesus does before um, he goes to the cross. And I think it's incredibly significant. What he's really speaking to is the heart of faith that says, I'm not just giving you something. I'm not just trying to appease you. I'm not just checking things off of a checkbox. I'm not doing whatever it is um, that, that I'm able to do or is comfortable to do. But I'm really saying to you, God, that I'm holding nothing back. That I'm trusting you wholeheartedly or completely to take care of me. Um, and I think that's the message of what it means to become a Christian. And Jesus sees it. He pounces on it. Um, I think he, in, in some sense, just took pleasure in this woman's story. And then he begins to prepare himself for, um, for his own death on the cross where he, he holds nothing back. Um, it's a fascinating, fascinating story. And I think it forces us to grapple with something that we don't, typically grapple with, and that's just simply when we say we're Christians, are we doing it wholeheartedly or are we giving a piece of ourselves to this and saying that's sufficient? Um, is the offer an offer of salvation? If you come forward and pray this prayer, then you get heaven. You get to claim that you're a Christian and you say, well, sure, that sounds great. I'll give you my prayer. 
I might even give you some of my time to church. I might even give you some of my money, God. I might even do some of these things. But that, that deal, that thing you're offering, it sounds wonderful. So let me give you a piece that you need, this kind of sinner's prayer, um, so that I can make that trade with you. And I, I don't think that's what Christianity is. Bonhoeffer says when, um, when Christ bids a man uh, to come, he bids him to come and die. The picture of baptism is this idea of dying to self and then being kind of raised back up in Christ, that Christ is your all in all in that sense. Uh, this idea of having a heart of stone when you're self and then laying down that heart and allowing God to remake that heart into a heart of flesh, uh, as it says in the Old Testament prophets. In Galatians, it says it this way. Galatians chapter 2 it says, if we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. And does that mean that Christ promotes sin? And the answer Paul gives is absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. In other words, I'm not going to build myself anew. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. So I died to sin. I died to the law so that I can live by faith and live for God. Now this is the fascinating verse. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so there's this fascinating thing that says, if I want this, I want all of it. I don't want to keep anything that once was. I want to set aside all the old and take on a whole new reality. Um, behold, uh, the old is gone and we are a new creation in Christ. Um, it, it's this, this thing, this theme that we see all throughout Scripture that we are made new, completely new when we come to Christ. And we're made completely new because all of the old is brought to the altar. So Romans chapter 12, Paul admonishes us and he says, present yourself as living sacrifices. As living sacrifices holy and pleasing to the Lord, that this is his will for you in Christ Jesus. A sacrifice was a burnt offering. You put it up, and whether it's a bird or an animal, it is burnt. It's a very bloody, smelly affair in the Old Testament when you had the altar going. And so these sacrifices are, are being sacrificed. Um, the blood is, is covering sins, but it can never fully and finally cover those sins. And yet this thing operates. And what Paul is saying is you present yourself on the altar that you don't belong to yourself anymore, but you're, you're giving yourself up to God, but you do it as a living sacrifice. You walk off the other side of the altar. You don't get burned up or consumed, but in presenting yourself on that offer, you're now a living sacrifice. And the rest of the life that you live... The rest of the days, the rest of the breath that we have, we live as living sacrifices, which is holy and pleasing to God. And this is his will for us in Christ Jesus. That it becomes the totality in some sense of our life. We don't invite Jesus into our heart. By the way, that never um, shows up in the New Testament. It was a verse taken out of context uh, in the book of Revelation where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But it was talking about the, the, the door of an assembly. It was one of the letters to, a seven, uh, to the seven churches. 
Okay, the, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, there's these letters, kind of those seven churches, and Jesus says, I'm not allowed into your community. It's like you guys meet and you have good ale and good food, but you don't really invite me in. Like, I'm not a part of that. And I'm standing here at the door and I, I'm knocking. If you would just open that door, I'd come in and you'd have a very spiritually vital community. An incredibly alive spiritual community. And that verse was co-opted to kind of give us this language of Jesus stands at the door of our hearts and knocks. And, and that might be wonderful, beautiful metaphor, but the idea we get from the New Testament is simply this, that when we give our life to Christ, we now are in Christ. He's the head over us. His righteousness covers us like a robe that we're kind of found in Christ. So where Christ goes, if we're in Christ, guess where we go? We go with Christ. If Christ is someone I'm inviting into my heart, I kind of fold him up and I tuck him into my heart. And then where does Jesus go? Jesus goes wherever I go. And we kind of reverse the polarity and, and really our understanding of what it means to be all fully, wholeheartedly into that. So this passage is really interesting because I, I think it's, it's scary. I want to do um, justice to this. So I want to talk about this in its, its totality. And I don't do it lightly and I don't do it flippantly and I don't do it to offend anybody. But when we, I don't know if it's going to work or not, but when we... are more in love with the blessings from God, the blessings here that come from God, then what happens when the blessings go away? What happens with the things that we love to hold? And we're like, this is really great stuff. Thank you, God. But our, our heart is really wrapped up in the thing that we hold, the thing that we're, we're excited about, in some sense, the thing that is supreme for us. What happens when that thing dies or goes away? Our faith quickly falls off because God was derivative of that blessing. What happens when God is supposed to bring you um, a really full life, and it doesn't happen that way. Where God's supposed to bring you a husband or a wife that's going to allow you to live happily ever after. And it doesn't happen that way. Where God's supposed to take care of that business that you started. Or those finances that you've been guarding and, and trying to nurture in all maturity. But trying to see them grow. But your heart is, is more there. And what happens when that goes what happens when anything that you can hold on to goes away and that really was where your heart was? There's a story um, that Chuck Swindoll tells of Cory ten Boom. And Cory ten Boom, I feel a real kinship with her because I'm Dutch. Um, it's in your honor, Connor. Um, but uh, I feel a kinship there. The story... Got to go visit those places when I was a little kid. My parents, we lived in, in Holland because my dad in the Navy was a part of an exchange program. But she came and actually for a long time went to EV3 uh, EV Fullerton where Chuck Swindoll was a pastor for many years. And one day he tells the story 
they were in church late. Everyone had kind of left is, is usually the case. If you stay long enough, you'll see that I'm, I'm out of here late. My kids are running around and playing. Um, and that's kind of the way it goes when you're in ministry. And you see a lot of life when those kids are playing. You see a lot of joy and a lot of laughter. And she comes up. Now she's uh, advanced in years, uh, rather old. Corey Ten Boom was the hiding place. Remember her father and the, the watches and the clocks and then hiding uh, Jews up in the, the second floor behind a false wall. And she comes up to Chuck Swindoll and says, let me, let me see your hand. And she points at his kids and she curls his hand up into a fist. And then she says, and she opens his hand up and she says, hold them loosely. Hold them loosely. And what she was saying to him was, with all that she'd seen, that as great of a blessing as those children were, they can be taken. Um, and she says, hold them loosely. We've, I was thinking about that story this week. I had two of my daughters, my two oldest in the car, and was driving somewhere and was reflecting on this sermon and I started getting choked up. And it's an awkward thing when you're in your car with the kids and just listening to Bruno Mars on the radio and driving along middle of day of bend and you're trying to pretend that you're not crying. Um, and I got choked up because I was thinking, you know, can, can we really hold everything as secondary? To God. So the picture, the picture is that if God is primary and first, and He provides these wonderful blessings, can we trust God first? and greater than the blessings that he provides. And then, heaven forbid, as blessings, wonderful promises that, that come as they potentially go, as hard and difficult as it is, does our faith still remain um, where we put it? Let me read briefly how I tried to talk about this in a chapter on faith. But I simply said this, one of the scariest and most confusing elements about Abraham's story is that he was asked to sacrifice the very thing that God had promised him, his son. I, I think there's a beauty that comes with focus on the family and how do, we, how do we reflect on raising godly kids. There's a beauty to that kind of thing that's, that's been a big part of the uh, conversation in the church the last 20, 30 years. The challenge is this wonderful, beautiful thing when we talk about a family, if we're not careful can become the end, um, the end, not a means, not a blessing, but, but ultimately the end. And so here's the challenge with the story of Abraham is he'd been promised this family, he'd been promised the son, and through that son, he was going to have, uh, as countless as the stars, um, descendants. So, so this son was going to be his legacy, it was going to be his love, it was going to be his promise. And so God all of a sudden says, this son of yours, this incredible blessing. Um, I want you to go sacrifice that. So he was asked to sacrifice the very thing that God had promised him, his son. And to have faith, he had to believe that God would keep his promise and he had to obey by destroying that promise. 
To have faith, we have to be willing to give up the promise itself to hold the blessings of God more loosely than God himself and somehow trust that in the end God will reconcile or redeem. Kierkegaard doesn't offer us much help here. He says this, No, the easiness of Christianity is distinguished by one thing only, by the difficulty. Thus its yoke is easy and its burden light for the person who has cast off all his burdens, all of them, the burdens of hope and of fear and of despondency and of despair. But this, this is very difficult. The prize is inextricable from the sacrifice. Faith offers God the very best of what we have. Trust puts its greatest security on the line and says, nothing will I hold back from you, my God. So there's this awkward reality of saying, if it's family, Jesus says, no one, no one who doesn't hate his own father, mother, children, daughter. And what he's really saying is, no one who can't put that secondary to the fear of the Lord or the awe of God or, or putting um, God first in their life can come. No one who cares about comfort because uh, I am sleeping on rocks as pillows. No one who cares about that comfort more than me can really understand what it means to be in Christ and to go where I'm going to go. No one who worries about what other people think about them more than, than following me can really come or, or go where I'm going to go. He, he kind of takes in all these different passages and really cashes out this idea that says, if you've got something in reserve, if you're holding something back that says, God, you can have all of me except this, then, then Jesus says that thing, that except, ultimately will keep you from going where I would want you to go. That thing that you're holding back ultimately is more important to you than I am. Ultimately, this has become greatest in your life. And you have an idol that gets your greatest worth. That's what wor uh, worship really means, by the way. The Anglo-Saxon for worship is worth-ship. What is worthy of, of my placing the ultimate value or worth in it? Worth-ship. And whatever we've, we've held back from God, no matter how good it is and right and true and a part of the way life should be, no matter what it is, when we hold that thing in reserve, we ultimately come to a place where we cannot continue to follow Christ. This is where our ultimate worth and value is. This is what we worship. This is our idol. So Jesus over and over again, is challenging the heart. And I, I think there's something incredibly significant when in, in the very end here, he watches and he sees this woman who holds nothing back, but all she has comes forward. And Jesus says, that, that's what it looks like to be wholehearted. That's what it looks like um, to love God fully. It's what it looks like to trust with open hands that nothing is, is held in reserve. And he teaches his disciples that that's the picture. Now, this whole thing can be abused. Um, we live in the age of uh, radical Christianity. There's a new book that came out by a young man who bought into what's come to be known as radical Christianity, sold everything, went to Africa, and it ruined his life, made him bitter, and he kind of came back and began to question um, how he had been led into this kind of radical position 
that, that only brought about kind of ruin to the people he was trying to minister to, his own faith and all this. And, and I think that happens. I think if I were to prescribe actions uh, for you, now go do this so that you can prove that you're all in. Go, go give all this so that you can be all in. Then, then in some sense, you're going to go sell everything, go to Africa. Why? Because that's what the book said to do or that's what your pastor said to do. And, and then you're expecting that somehow this is going to work in a certain kind of way. And that's not what I ever want to do with anybody. I want to say, put yourself all the way onto that altar. Walk off the other side and then say, now God, what would you have me do? Who would you have me be? And, and even if you don't make that known to me today or this month or this year, I am in a listening, I'm in a listening position. I have, I have a, a listening posture so that when you speak to me or when you guide me or when you tell me what it is you would have me do, in that moment, the answer will be yes. And I will walk that road and I will make that sacrifice or I will, I will chase down that person uh, or I will switch careers, whatever it is, in that moment when you speak to me or guide me or lead me, I will follow. I don't ever want to prescribe what it is God would have somebody do. I want to come and say all of us, when we're fully in and engaged, not holding anything back, we're in a position to where I think God can then speak to us what it is that we would want to hear from him. When we're holding something back, we're, we're almost in this awkward spot of not wanting to hear from God. God, I don't really, I want to hear from you, because that sounds kind of cool, to hear from the God of the universe, but I don't want to hear from you, because that kind of scares the heck out of me to hear from the God of the universe, because what if I don't like what you say? It's like ultimate authority, and, and what would I really do with that? So maybe it's just best if I pretend to hear you in areas where I'm comfortable with, but I don't really have to get the full force of your voice or your will speaking into my life because that scares the heck out of me. And what I'm saying is, no, as scary as it is, it's where we want to be. Um, let me draw one more thing. Um, Colossians 2.2, something I just thought about this morning, to be honest with you, but I want to share briefly because I think it's the gospel in this whole story. Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 2. And so the whole idea, and you've heard me say it a number of times. If you haven't, I say it a lot. But life is messy. We, we think it's supposed to be cleaner. We think if we just resolve this issue, uh, this issue get over that next hill, if we can just um, somehow, whatever it might be, we can get to that season where it's not going to be messy. We're forever chasing that. And the reality is life is relentlessly difficult, and it is messy. Um, and God is mysterious. Um, so God is mysterious. Life is messy. And we think God shouldn't be so mysterious that somehow um, he should speak more often, speak more clearly, speak more in line with what I can kind of resonate with. But, but we're really frustrated that somehow in all of our prayers, all of our asking, all of our wishing and wanting and hoping, that God is a little bit more abstract, a little bit more mysterious than what we'd have him be. And what I really said is faith is that walk down the middle in that tension between these two awkward realities. But I want to add a layer to that. So Colossians 2.2 says this, My purpose, 
My purpose, this is Paul, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit. And I delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Do you see that? In the, mess, in the messiness of, of this city and in this community, I pray that you would be united, that you would be one, that you'd be able to come together, and that you would know the mystery of God in Christ Jesus. And that this would be where your faith could be placed. And it's a beautiful, beautiful reality. Do you see how differently that picture is than there's sin over here, God over here. You can't get across because you're a sinner. So walk across the bridge that is Christ so that, so that you and God can live happily ever after. Christ isn't a mediator in the sense that he's a bridge to walk across. He's a mediator in a sense that he's a bridge between us and God. That he is the, the answer to that tension of the messiness of life and the mystery of God. That in the person of Jesus Christ, it's been revealed. Jesus dealt with the mess. and Jesus holds the answer to the mystery. And our faith in being in Christ, going where he goes, doing as he does, learning from him that we can become Christ-like, that's kind of the resolution of all of it. That's the good news. And that's Christianity. Someone reminded me recently of uh, the last battle. So if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, my daughters and I finished this two years ago. Last Battle is the seventh book. Came out um, in, I think, 1958. And in this book, Lewis kind of wraps up this whole story of this world of Narnia. But it's interesting because the kids, the Pevensey children, don't show up until uh, over half of the way through the book. The way the book begins is you've got this ape named Shift. And this ape finds uh, the skin of a lion. And he gets this idea. And he takes this kind of dumb, uh, impressionable donkey named Puzzle. And he puts, he kind of sews it and puts this lion's skin over the donkey. And he begins, finds a hut. He calls it the house, uh, kind of where Aslan's at. And he begins to bring Aslan out. Uh, at a distance from everybody else, you can't come near him. But they see this lion from a distance, and he tells them, all these people, all these Narnians, that Aslan has returned. And I'm his mouthpiece, uh, the ape, Shift. And, and this ape, his heart is twisted. And the people begin to go, okay, Aslan's back. And, and Shift begins to tell them certain things. And little by little, he begins to tyrannize them turns them against each other, has them begin to cut down the talking trees, uh, the Narnian trees, begins to make an alliance with the Calamines, the, the enemies, begins to eventually slowly teach them that Tash, the foreign god, uh, and, and Aslan are one and the same god and, and begins to really wreak uh, havoc in Narnia and destroy Narnia. And so these, these people don't know what to do and they're being, they're being tyrannized. Um, and eventually Aslan's coming back and he's returning. And so the real lion, uh, the, the real one, the one who actually cares about the land, the place, the people, the one who is different 
uh, then the false god is returning, and the Pevensey children come, and there's going to be this last battle. But you see this interesting story where they, they get to the, uh, the dwarves. Now, the dwarves have been abused by what was claiming to be of God. Um, and, and now all of a sudden, someone's coming and saying, no, 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 the right picture is coming. And the dwarves' response is, we've had enough of this. Um, They're called to come back to their allegiance with Aslan. And they say, yeah, sneered the dwarves, not likely. You're just as big a humbugs as the other lot. We don't want any kings. The dwarfs are now for the dwarfs. I think we're in a really interesting time in the church where the world has had its way with trying to tell us what's what. I feel like the church, and I'm a part of that system, has tried to tell us what's what and oftentimes spoken uh, on behalf of God in, in manipulative ways. Uh, and in the midst of all this, I think my generation, our generation, has kind of come to the conclusion we've had enough with the lot of it. Um, we don't trust the country. We don't trust the world, we don't trust worldly ways. We kind of know that's not going to satisfy us, but we don't trust the church either. And so you're calling us to return to some kind of spiritual allegiance, and we don't trust it. The dwarves are for the dwarves. And I think we come to this position of saying, I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm not going to go all in with anything. Uh, frankly, I'm going to take care of myself, and I'm going to make sure that... Um, that I'm never going to be suckered again into believing that something's going to provide the answers that I really need. And so you might be sitting there this morning and you're thinking, yeah, I don't trust the world. That's why I'm here. But I don't know that I trust the church either. Uh, I'm skeptical and I've got my doubts. Yet deep in your heart, you know that there's something about you that was made to be in complete fellowship, complete transparent naked fellowship with God. And you long for that. But you're afraid that you can't really talk about the sins that you know you have because you don't know that you're, you're really ready to give them up. Or you can't really go to God and say, I'll follow, I'll follow you wherever you want me to go because you know there's something that you're holding on to. Or something that, that's a goal or a vision in your life that's supreme, that's not God's. Or didn't come from God and you're worried that he might take that from you. There's this tension. And I'm here to say Aslan's coming. That Jesus is coming. And he's different than his representatives. He's the one that can claim your allegiance. That you can bring all of it to. Because he died for those sins. And ultimately he knows who you are. He knows every hair on your head, and he says you can trust him with your dreams for life because if you obey him, your joy will be made complete for his joy will be in you, said Jesus. That somehow, as scary as it is, that we can lean into that space. Um, so I'm going to invite us all to do something if you choose. Uh, I, I got a bunch of widow's mites. 
So there's a bunch of these up here, and there's a card, and there's a pen. Um, but if you're in a position to where you're willing to say, you know what, what I want to be true of me more than anything else is that I'm all the way in, that I'm not holding anything back. Like that widow, I can come forward and say, all that I am, all that I have, I can trust you even with my bitterness or my frustration, God, my grief. All that I have, I'm willing to bring into conversation with you. If you're willing to try and move that way, which is very different than saying, Jesus, I'm willing to pray a prayer that says you're going to give me eternal life. Um, if you're willing to kind of say, I want to, to walk that way. However weak I'm going to do it, with, with whatever mistakes I'm going to make, I'm willing to try and move that direction. I'd invite you to come down and you can write your email and your name on a piece of uh, paper, put it in the little bin and take one of those widow's mites. And here's the deal I'm making with you. Um, that widow's mite is for you to, to walk with, to, to reflect on, to use as you continue that conversation with God and pray about what it means to hold nothing back. The paper with your name on it and the email is just simply so that I can be praying for you between now and Easter. And I commit to emailing every single one of you and talking about as we're trying to journey forward together, um, being all in, not where I'm prescribing where you go with that, but that together we're, we're listening to the head of the body. Jesus is the head of the church, the head of the body. We're the parts. He gives direction to us as we seek to love one another and build the body up um, in love as each does its part. Um, as we seek to do that together, I commit to email um, and to pray for you and to just dream about what God can do as we trust him with all of our best stuff or all of our scariest stuff or all the most meaningful stuff. So I'm going to pray for us. You can come down during prayer. You can come down as we sing out two songs uh, before we dismiss. There's no pressure. Uh, this is just an opportunity for you to take a step of faith, uh, no, no, no matter how small. So let me pray for us. Father, it's, it's an easy default for us to be for ourselves. There's so many reasons and excuses we've been given to not trust anymore. We've lost so many things that, that we believed you'd brought us. We don't understand why we lost them. We've shed so many tears. We've made so many mistakes. We, we just have a hard time really believing that, go, that going somehow all in or turning to you once again with our whole heart, that that's somehow going to lead somewhere. We're tired. We're worn out. We're depressed. So, Father, whatever shred of faith we have, I pray that you would fan it into flame right now. That you'd help us to believe once again. That you'd help us to realize that in Christ, the mess and the mystery is reconciled. And that when we place our faith in Christ, we can have the grace and the picture and the answer and the relationship to move forward the way it was supposed to be. So I pray for us now, for myself, for this community we call Antioch, as we seek to commit to you to be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing in your sight. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.